Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Black cowboys made up at least one-third of the cowhands that drove cattle across the long trails from Texas to Midwestern and Northern points in the middle of the 19th century. But you'd never know that from the images of the cowboy and popular culture. Contrary to popular media depictions, black cowboys were integral to the transformation of the West. They joined the roundups, cattle drives, and served on the ranch crews that defined the era of the great trail drives in the American West. Some were lured by the open range, the chance for regular, albeit low, wages, and the opportunity to start new lives. Others worked cattle and horses because those were the skills they honed while they were enslaved, and after emancipation, they continued to work on the ranches and farms they and their parents had served on before the Civil War. Today, we're talking about cowboys and cowgirls of color in the American West. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Images of the American cowboy are part and parcel of many people's ideas of what America is. We hold up the self-made man, the rugged individual, the lone pioneer family who headed out west and made it as pinnacles of what America is fundamentally about. Now, countless historians have debunked this myth, showing how massive amounts of capital and government intervention allowed the West to become habitable and profitable for farmers, cattle ranchers, and for the growth of cities and towns. Not to mention the guns and manpower behind the U.S. Army's near-genocide of the Native Americans already living in these areas, corralled into smaller and smaller reservations until they posed little to no threat to incoming American capitalism. Yet the myth of the West holds strong in the American collective consciousness. Advertisers and politicians have seized on these ideas of rugged individuals who are inhabiting an quote-unquote empty landscape. So think about the Marlboro Man who hawked cigarettes since the 1950s. American men in the 50s didn't want to smoke cigarettes with filters. They thought that a filtered cigarette was, was sissy. 
right? So marketers at Marlboro thought up the Marlboro Man, a cowboy, the image of a rugged, manly man to sell filtered cigarettes to American men, convincing them that filtered cigarettes were cool. I mean, you know, if a cowboy is smoking them, they must be for men, right? And so Marlboro became the leading brand of cigarettes in the U.S. for decades, particularly with young people. Politicians also seize on the image of the cowboy. There isn't a modern American president who hasn't been pictured wearing a big old Stetson hat, trying to look like the everyman. Donald Trump hasn't done it yet, has no, he? Yes. Oh, gross. every single, yeah. Obama, every Trump, single yeah. one. Every single one. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it about the West that has so much appeal to Americans over the years? The West is portrayed as the embodiment of freedom and individuality a place where people could find success all on their own. And it was possible because the West was essentially an empty landscape with natural wealth, a land that didn't belong to anyone. Of course, the land, in a sense, did belong to people, although their conception of ownership was much different than the Anglo version. Plains Indians lived in the expanse we call the West. When the white settlers began moving west, there was a quarter of a million Indians living there already, consisting of a number of different tribes and bands. Some were sedentary, like Hopi and Navajo. Many were nomadic hunters who followed the buffalo herds over vast areas. There were an estimated 13 million buffalo roaming the plains in the early 19th century. By 1890, there was about 1,000 left on the free range. Americans have this perpetual myth that the West was uniquely hospitable to, quote, making it on your own. Truly, life in the West was less easy to make on your own. The infrastructure that built the West got huge subsidies from all levels of government. Ranchers and farmers could not have developed their ranches without those important railroad connections. So although this myth is really appealing, the reality is much more complex. Take mining, for example. The mining migration started before the Civil War. The California gold strike started in 1848. On their way to the West Coast, some people stopped off along the way. Many hung out in Nevada, where they found a little gold and struck silver. And there's this idea that the people that benefited from these mineral discoveries were the prospectors and the little groups of men who went out and they made these lucky strikes. And actually, there is a little bit of truth to that. Individual miners who made the original discoveries did get rich. But for individuals, there was only so much of the metal that they could take advantage of because they could only really get to the minerals on the surface. They didn't have the capital to do the deep mining that was called for to really get all of those resources out. So take, for example, the Comstock load, the biggest silver strike in American history. The profits out of this particular strike work out to a billion dollars in today's money, but it costs an enormous amount to get that silver. The soil was particularly soft, and so they were constantly under threat of cave-ins. Mining engineers came up with a novel plan of building little boxes around so people wouldn't be buried as they hauled the ore out. And that took capital. It took investment from eastern banks. The same for copper from Butte, Montana, and the smelter in Anaconda, Montana, where the Butte copper was processed. The Butte mine went down a mile deep, and then there was harder rock, so they didn't have to do the box work they did in Comstock. 
but to get the ore out, they had to build a railroad system inside the Butte mine. They built 3,000 miles of underground tracks. Where we're going here is to make the point that in order to take advantage of these discoveries of precious metals, it took extreme amounts of outside capital to take advantage of these reserves. To extract, smelt down to a pure form, and to ship to markets took more than just one guy and a pitchfork. It isn't that big companies came in and pushed the little guys out. Rather, the little guys on their own could not take advantage of it without the companies and large investments of capital. Additionally, the railroad acted as a push and pull factor for American migration west. Railroad companies wanted people to move to the Great Plains. They wanted this land to be filled with people who could use the railroads, but they also wanted to make money by selling that land. That was the biggest motivation because the railroad companies owned a huge chunk of real estate. The federal government gave the railroad companies huge swaths of land through land grants and encouraged them to build. The railroads were given over 100 million acres from federal, state, and local governments. The railroad companies wanted to sell this land. They didn't sell it for much, but it was still a profit as they were given the land by federal land grants, you know, for for free. Or very little. Or very little. Like a cent an acre, whatever, Mm -hmm. half a cent an acre. As railroads grew and more cities began attracting the railroads to make stops in their towns, the Western infrastructure grew. So this expansion of transportation was enormously useful for the country in pushing it towards economic development. But private investors didn't come forward to build this infrastructure. It was underwritten by the federal government. The big railroad boom really took off in the 1890s, which brought to a close one of the most mythologized periods of Western history, that of the massive cattle drives out of Texas to Midwestern railroad hubs and northern processing facilities. The period between approximately 1865 to 1890 was a short span of about 25 years when cattle drives and cowboys were at their height. And so that's where we'll spend the majority of our time this episode, giving you a little glimpse into the lives of a few people who lived and worked as cowhands and horse masters, eking out a living as wage laborers and small farm owners while the built environment grew around them. Cattle trails started with big cattle drives out of Texas. Texas Longhorns had been roaming the Southwest for over a hundred years, since the time that the Spanish arrived in North America. Nobody really owned these Longhorn. They essentially roamed free. Additionally, they were not really marketable until the railroad started moving west across the country, and it was possible to get them to hubs like Chicago, where the giant meatpacking facilities were able to process the animals. Some cattle drives would take the animals all the way north. Others took them to railroad hubs in places like Kansas City to be shipped further north and east. The first large-scale effort to drive cattle from Texas to the nearest railroad for shipment to Chicago occurred in 1866. A group of Texas ranchers banded together to drive their cattle to the closest point that the railroad tracks reached, which at that time was Sedalia, Missouri. Subsequently, these cattle drives became a major economic activity. Many drives originated in Texas. The major trails were the Goodnight Loving Trail, the Potter Bacon Trail, the Western Trail, the Chisholm Trail, and the Shawnee or Texas Trail. The word cowboy refers to those hired by cattle owners to tend and herd their livestock. Cowboys often worked from horseback and performed a variety of tasks that included keeping the cattle together, guiding them to pasture, protecting them from rustlers or bandits, branding cattle, and driving them to a railroad shipping point. This latter activity defined the heyday of the cowboy. These cattle drives could sometimes last two or three months uh, with these cowboys traveling over treacherous terrain. 
Cattle drives were usually performed by a crew that consisted of a trail chief, eight cowboys, a wrangler to take care of the horses, and a cook. Most of these crews consisted of a numerous black or Mexican heritage cowboys. I always use wrangler to, like, describe how I take care of my kids. That's... And it's like, now I know that that's exactly accurate. <laughs> that's exactly. <laughs> baby wrangler. I'm a baby wrangler. Cowboys were waged laborers, and their lives were extremely hard, mostly working for room and board and extremely low pay. They rode anywhere from 12 to 16 hours a day. The weather was harsh, either extremely hot and dry or bitter cold in the winter. Unsurprisingly, there was a series of cowboy strikes in the 1880s. In 1883, an essentially general strike swept across the Texas panhandle. One of the leaders was 40-year-old Pueblo Indian named Juan Antonio Gomez. The cowboys had no union, but were well organized and prepared for the strike um, by building a strike fund in advance. So like many labor strikes, uh, I don't know, bourgeoisie or establishment newspapers, you know, what's a good way? The man. Yeah, the man. So, so, So the man's press harangued the striking cowboys, complaining that they were just loafs or dangerous agitators who just wanted a free ride. And see if this sounds familiar. The Las Vegas Gazette wrote that the strikers were, quote, using unlawful means to compel their employers to grant their request of higher wages and added that the strikes, quote, always result in evil and no good. But the strikers were not easy to push around. One newspaper reported that the bosses, quote, imported a lot of men from the east, but the cowboys surrounded the newcomers and would not allow them to work. So essentially the bosses are kind of bringing in scabs, right? And the cowboys aren't letting them on the, on the line. Um, and, of course, it also helped out that according to the Fort Collins Courier, the strikers were, quote, armed with Winchester rifles and six shooters, and the lives of all those who attempt to work for less than the amount demanded are in great danger. Ooh. Many of those attracted to work uh, as cowboys were single men. In fact, a lot of them were former Confederate soldiers. The economy in the South after the Civil War was stagnant, so a lot of former Confederates ended up out on the Great Plains working as cowboys. However, as more scholarship is done on the class and gender dynamics of cowboys, um, it's become glaringly apparent that the cowboys were not entirely the white men that Western movies would have us believe. In fact, at least one-third of all cowboys were black or of Mexican heritage. These cowboys worked as wranglers, riders, ropers, bulldoggers, and bronchbusters. I think you can probably figure out what wranglers, riders, and ropers did. Bulldoggers essentially handled or wrestled unruly cattle. In rodeo terminology, this is now called steer wrestling. It's where the cowboy is riding alongside a steer and they jump off their horse and are timed to see how long it takes them to wrestle the steer to the ground. Bronchbusters were people, or are people really, because people still do this kind of work, who, you know, quote unquote, break horses. So they're the horse tamers, so to speak. Black cowboys came from varied backgrounds. Many grew up in slavery, often learning their skills as slaves on cattle ranches. Others were free blacks from Mexico. Most who joined the long trail drives were men, but black women also rode and worked on western ranches and farms. One of these women, Mary Fields, lived and worked in Montana. She was known as a sure shot. She hauled freight for the Ursuline nuns in St. Peter's Mission near Cascade, Montana, Oh my gosh, we mentioned the Ursuline Muns in my Canadian episode. <laughs> what are the odds? Um, she lost the position, however, because the bishop heard of her involvement in a shootout with bandits trying to steal her freight. The bishop considered it inappropriate for a woman freight hauler to get involved in gunfights while working for him, so he fired her. 
A black woman in Texas named Aunt Polly Upton lived in the Mellon Creek Ranch and had a small herd of cattle of her own and was known for being an excellent rider and wrangler. Henrietta Williams Foster, or Aunt Riddy as she was called, was a native of Mississippi who was taken to Texas by her slave owner. She was known as a tough woman who worked cattle, rode bareback, and, quote, could ride a horse better than a man, end quote, in addition to her fieldwork, domestic chores, and child rearing. After emancipation, Aunt Riddy owned her own home and cattle. We know about cowgirl or vaquera, uh, the Spanish term for cowgirl, Johanna July, because of WPA records. In the 30s, during the Great Depression, as part of FDR's jobs program, the Works Progress Administration hired tons of social scientists, historians, and out-of-work academics to go out and gather oral histories of the people in the United States. One of the women these WPA interviewers talked to was Johanna July. July was born in Mexico in 1860 in a black Seminole family. She most likely spent her early days in Nacimiento de los Negros, a settlement establishment in northern Mexico, following the immigration of Indian and black Seminoles from Indian territory in the U.S. into Mexico. And there is a whole really interesting history about Seminole Indians, particularly black Seminole Indians in Mexico. Uh, after the Indian Removal Act of 1830, a large portion of them, including many Maroons or enslaved black people who uh, basically kind of escaped into Florida and who lived near and among Florida Indian tribes, uh, all of these people moved to Mexico where slavery was illegal. So I'd like to actually do a whole podcast on that soon. If you're interested in hearing more about that, let us know and we'll try to get to it sooner rather than later. By about 1870, however, after much of northern Mexico had been ceded to the U.S. during the Mexican War, the U.S. Army was desperate for translators and scouts familiar with the border country. They began to employ black Seminoles from northern Mexico, which led many to return to the United States. Many of them, including Johanna July's family, settled in or near Eagle Pass, Texas in 1871. She was about 10 years old when they moved back to the U.S., Throughout her childhood, Johanna July learned to work cattle and, in particular, to ride and tame horses. July mastered the art of breaking horses. She preferred to ride bareback, although she was also known to ride side saddle. Her technique for breaking horses was unique. Many vaqueros would break horses by walking them through deep sand or mud to tire them out. July used the Rio Grande River. She explained her method to her WPA interviewer. I would pull off my clothes and get into the clothes I intended to bathe in, and I would lead them right into the Rio Grande and keep them there till they got pretty well worried. When they were wild, wild, I would lead them down to the river and get them out in the water where he couldn't stand up, and I would swim up and get him by the mane and ease up on him. He couldn't pitch, and when I did let him out in the deep, deep water, he didn't want to pitch. Sometimes they wasn't so worn out and would take a running spree with me, and they got out in the shallow water where they could get their feet on the ground, and they would run clear up into the corral. But I was young, and I was having a good time. So July married a U.S. Army scout at the age of 18 who was stationed at Fort Clark near Brackettville, Texas. She left her mother and family for a small home near Las Morris Creek, but she found this transition difficult as she had grown up in a matrifocal community where women banded together and work while oftentimes the men were away for extended periods on scout patrol. So leaving this female-centered lifestyle proved difficult. She no longer had that female-centered network. 
Additionally, her lack of domestic skills angered her new husband. Johanna had spent her whole life taking care of horses and livestock, not learning how to clean a home or prepare food. Apparently, this upset her new husband, who began to abuse her. After one beating, she decided to leave. She slipped away in the night, stole a neighbor's horse, and attempted to go back to her mother. But she, quote, couldn't get that old pony out of a trot, end quote. In fear that he would trail after her, she rode through the night anyway, covering the 45 miles to her home. As I got to Fort Duncan, I heard a sentry call out, four o'clock and all is well. I know I said to myself, all may be well, but I don't feel so well after this ride. (laughs) Johanna stayed with her mother, but she was always vigilant of her surroundings because she feared the wrath of her spouse. She revealed that, quote, he come down there to her to her mother's home three or four times to get me, but I wouldn't go. He shot me two different times, but he missed me. And then he tried to rope me, but the Lord fixed it so my head was too low and the rope went over. I got to the brush and he never could find me. He would have killed me and I knowed it, end quote. Johanna remained with her extended family and continued raising livestock and breaking horses. Later, she married a man named Ned Wilkes in 1881 and had four children. Wilkes passed away in 1900, three years after the Seminoles were evicted from Fort Ringgold in 1897. She married her third husband sometime before 1910, and they worked with livestock, broke horses, hunted, and sold hides. Like, together? They did it together? That's sweet. So she finally... finally found somebody wasn't an yeah (laughs) johanna july's life shows us one glimpse of a fairly common phenomenon that women were adept cowhands whose stories are often overlooked contrary to what we see in films and other popular media women worked livestock rode horses and managed ranches if women are included in the story, it has mostly focused on Anglo women, but women of color were integral to both the economics of cattle raising and the physicality of it. Some worked for part of a family wage or aided a spouse. Others did it all on their own. But we don't find a lot of evidence of these women on the surface because for most, lines of inheritance went to men. So even if women were running and operating businesses and ranches, it was their male kinfolk who were actually on the books as owning the operations. It's only through snippets like these WPA interviews of of July that we find out more about the lives of these women. Images of black cowboys have been scarce in popular culture as well, giving the false impression that African Americans were not among the men and women who worked cattle out west. Like all ranch hands and riders, African American cowboys lived hard, dangerous lives. Black drovers were expected to do the roughest, most dangerous work, and to do it without complaint. They faced discrimination, but sometimes less than in the south, which many had left in search of autonomy and freedom. As cowboys, they could escape the brutal violence visited on African Americans in many southern communities and in northern cities. Many black cowboys began their cattle work while enslaved, brought to Texas by white landholders. Once there, many whites began ranching, often selling or trading their slaves for livestock. By 1861, Texas had over 180,000 black inhabitants and close to 4 million head of cattle. When the Civil War ended four years later, ranching, with its dependence on cowboys, became a dominant industry. This makes me want to speak with, like, a southern accent. I won't. I won't. (laughs) (laughs) I won't. I'm just saying. It makes me want to, like, I don't know, just just all these words. So, um, 
While riding herd, black and white cowboys depended upon each other. They lived, ate, slept, and worked together. The demands of the trail were many. Harsh weather, snakes and wolves, dangerous rivers and mountains, and the threat of attack from Native Americans forced many white cowboys to transcend their prejudices. One black cowboy, Nat Love, also known as Deadwood Dick, summed up the cowboy code. Quote, There's a man's work to be done and a man's life to be lived, and when death was to be met, he met it like a man. End quote. Do it like a man. Nat Love was born into slavery near Nashville, Tennessee, sometime around 1854. After emancipation, his family stayed on the plantation that they had worked and became sharecroppers. Love, already known for his skill with horses, headed out west at the age of 16. We know a lot about Love because he published his autobiography in 1907, entitled Life and Adventures of Nate Love, better known in the cattle country as Deadwood Dick, by himself. Isn't it Nat Love? What did I say, Nate? Nate. Fucking fuck. We know a lot about Love because he published his autobiography in 1907, entitled Life and Adventures of Nat Love, better known in the cattle country as Deadwood Dick, by himself. As a young man, he traveled through the West on cattle drives. He started in Dodge City, Kansas, where he found work as a cowboy with cattle drivers from the Duval Ranch uh, located on the Paladuro River in the Texas Panhandle. After driving a herd of cattle to the railhead in Deadwood, Dakota Territory, Love entered a rodeo on the 4th of July in 1876. Deadwood was a boomtown, propped up by the recent discovery of the Homestakes Mine. Mining men and gamblers organized a roping contest with a $200 prize. And just to reiterate how many cowboys were actually people of color, a good portion of the competing cowboys in the competition were black or had mixed ancestry. Each cowboy had to rope, throw, tie, bridle, and saddle a Mustang in the shortest time. Love won the competition by coming in at exactly 9 minutes. The closest runner-up came in at 12. Love also won the shooting contest. Each contestant had 14 shots with a rifle and 12 shots with a Colt revolver. Love swept the competition and took the prize money, earning himself on the moniker Deadwood Dick after a popular dime novel character. In 1872, Love moved to Arizona, where he found work at the Gallander Ranch. It was in Arizona that Love met and drank with famous outlaws like Billy the Kid. In 1877, Love wrote that he was captured by a band of Pima Indians while rounding up stray cattle near the Gila River in Arizona. Love was shot a few times in the scuffle, but he claimed his life was spared because the Indians recognized his blackness, as many of them were of mixed black heritage themselves. He wrote that the Pima nursed him back to health and hoped to adopt him into their tribe. Eventually, however, Love stole a pony and escaped into West Texas. By the late 1880s, Love had settled down a bit. He married a woman named Alice and worked as a Pullman porter, overseeing the sleeping cars on the Denver and Rio Grande railroads. He published his autobiography at the age of 53 in 1907 and spent his later years as a courier and guard for a securities company in Los Angeles. Wow, what a life. What a life. I mean, that's just, (laughs) wow. Another famous black cowboy is Bose Eichard. Eichard was born enslaved on a farm in Somerville, Mississippi, sometime in the 1840s. His owner, who was most likely his father, moved his family and his slaves to Parker County, Texas in 1852. Eichard is famous for his close association with the Goodnight-Loving Cattle Trail, one of the most famous and heavily used cattle trails, and for his close association with Charles Goodnight, the trail's namesake. After emancipation... 
Eichard remained on the ranch that he had been raised and enslaved on. His primary job after emancipation, as before it, was working the cattle. In 1866, he began work as a trail driver in the Goodnight-Loving Trail's first year. Much of what we know about Eichard comes from the memories of Charles Goodnight. Eichard and Goodnight began a friendship in 1866 that lasted until Eichard's death. Eichard worked the Goodnight-Loving Trail until 1869. Between trips on the trail, sometime in the late 1860s, Eichard married a woman named Angeline, who'd also been born into slavery in Texas in 1853. They had six children together, of whom five survived to adulthood. After his trail riding days, Eichard settled in Weatherford, Texas, which is just west of Fort Worth. He became a farmer and lived a fairly mundane existence, doing yard work and errands for neighbors while tending his farm. When he died, the obituary in the Weatherford paper had no mention of his days and adventures on the historic Goodnight-Loving Trail. When Charles Goodnight heard of Eichard's death, however, he contacted local authorities and had a new obituary published in the paper under the headline, Charles Goodnight Erects Monument to Negro Friend Buried Here. Goodnight also had an epitaph engraved on Eichard's headstone, which reads, quote, Served with me for four years on the Goodnight Loving Trail. Never shirked duty or disobeyed an order. Rode with me in many stampedes. Participated in three engagements with Comanches. Splendid behavior. Um, see Goodnight. Now, if y'all are Larry McMurdy fans, you probably already know this, but the character in Lonesome Dove, Joshua Dietz, who was played by Danny Glover in the movie, is based on Bose Eichard. Another famous black cowboy is Bill Pickett. He was born in 1870, about 30 miles northwest of Austin, Texas. He was the oldest of 13 children. His parents were both born into slavery and both were of mixed racial heritage, which included Native American ancestry. After the Civil War ended slavery, Pickett's father moved his family to the small community near Austin and began to raise vegetables for market. Pickett and several of his brothers worked on ranches around Austin and became skillful cowboys. Around 1888, the Pickett family moved to Tyler, Texas, where five of the Pickett brothers worked on local ranches and offered their skills at breaking horses. Pay for this type of work was extremely low, so one way Bill Pickett made ends meet was by riding bucking horses on Sunday afternoons to amuse bystanders and pick up some extra cash by passing the hat. Pickett worked on local ranches for a number of years. In 1890, he married Maggie Williams, and they had nine children together. He made ends meet by taking any farm and ranch work available, including picking cotton and taming horses. Apparently, sometime in the late 1890s, he even became blind for 11 months. Then, when the condition cleared up, he swore his eyesight never troubled him again. So, like, what? Is that a virus? Yeah, something. But this is crazy. Yeah. He was, he was blind for 11 months. And then, and, and then, okay. I wonder if he still worked anyway. He probably... Well, luckily he had nine children. Yeah. You know? do some work for him. But Pickett is most famous on account of his unique rodeo skills. He learned his cowboy skills by, uh, from observing cattle dogs that were used as a method of controlling cattle. Bulldogs were originally bred to control, get this, bulls. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> Bulldogs would bite the bull's muzzle and hold on, essentially subduing the bull. Pickett discovered that he, too, could subdue cattle by biting them, and sure enough, as an adult, Pickett would leap from his horse, seize the steer by the horns, and pull the head back to the point where he could bite the animal's upper lip, and the steer would be immobilized. 
Oftentimes, the steer falls onto the cowboy. You see that even now, you know, in rodeos nowadays. Mm -hmm. And this biting technique is now obviously illegal in modern steel wrestling for pretty obvious reasons. Um, Steers also are much lighter in modern rodeos, usually about 400 to 700 pounds. But back in the day, picket faced steers between 800 to 1100 pounds. So needless to say, picket lost a lot of his teeth. And because the bulls often fell on him, he was frequently injured. Oh, my gosh. I feel like, I don't know. That's like the Wild West version of, like, Noble's life. He's just, like, (laughs) constantly, constantly hurt. In question, that biting thing, did they, have they they done that in, like, the 20th century with bulls? Like, so it's just outlawed outlawed recently or no, or... I don't. I, you I don't know exactly. Know that's not loud. Oh my god, that's crazy. I I I I don't think he did it that often, and we go into it a little bit more later. But there is video of him mm-hmm. uh, bulldogging. Yeah, and he does not use that. Technique. Right. So it was just something that people kind of so knew that he did sometimes. I, 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 my assumption is that he probably maybe did it once or twice, or mm-hmm. maybe it was some kind of like exoticism. Yeah. Of right. him, because later, as we'll learn. He uh, was known as the Dusky Demon, right? And so it's kind of like, oh, this black guy does these crazy things kind of thing. Right. When in actuality, I mean, he was, you know, a legit, like... Yeah, he was just like... Steel wrestler. Any other other wrestler. Um, Pickett's first major public exhibition was at the Tyler County Fair in 1888. After that, he began to tour Texas County Fairs, and in 1900, he started touring extensively. In 1905, he joined the 101 Show, a Wild West exhibition that would attract up to 65,000 people to events. Pickett joined the lineup as the Dusky Demon, uh, and he traveled around the world with a show. From 1907 through 1913, Pickett toured with the 101 Show in the United States and Mexico. In the winter of 1913, the show went to South America and then to England, where all of their horses were seized by the British government at the outbreak of World War I. Wow. Yeah. Um, they almost didn't make it home because they couldn't find a ship that would take them back to America. Wow. That's amazing. But I did know about those Wild West shows in England because I think I read a... Oh, well, yeah. And didn't, um, like, Cody travel through England, too? Annie Oakley yeah. went to England yeah. Yeah. and, like, did these Wild West shows kind of indoors. And all the British people were like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. It's so that was a, you know, was a thing. It's, like, kind of like the vaudeville circuit. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's just yep. it's entertainment. It's mm-hmm. No TVs. So you can see Bill Pickett's bulldogging skills in the short film, The Bulldogger. It's at the Library of Congress, and we've got it linked in the show notes. He was the 20th person to be inducted into the National Rodeo Cowboy Hall of Fame, and there's actually a bronze statue of him in the stockyards in Fort Worth, Texas. He also has a U.S. postage stamp, but there's a bit of a funny story to this. The U.S. Postal Service unveiled the Legends of the West stamp collection in 1993, and one of the stamps in the collection honored Bill Pickett. However, Pickett's family informed the Postal Service that the picture they used, which to the post office's defense had been accredited to Bill Pickett in numerous sources, uh, the picture was actually of Bill's brother, Ben. So the Postal Service announced the recall and the destruction of five million stamp panes that had been shipped to hundreds of post offices with the erroneous Bill Pickett stamp. Oh my God, it's got to be worth so much money right now. If any survived. (laughs) 
Um, the Postal Service made new artwork for Pickett's stamp, but just as the new stamps were hitting the presses, the Postal Service discovered that some clerks had sold 183 of the incorrect stamp panes, like I said, right? Um, this created a collectible so rare that the value skyrocketed. So, to give the public a chance to own the incorrect stamps and to defray the reprinting costs, the Postal Service made the controversial decision to sell 150,000 of the faulty panes through a lottery which collectors grabbed at lightning speeds. Now, I was actually curious, and so I did a quick little search with the Google machine, and I found a few of these stamps on eBay for about $75 to $150. Uh, I also found a Blue Book-type stamp price guide that listed it for $240. So, I don't know. I'm not a stamp collector, so I don't know if that's like an exorbitant amount for a stamp. It doesn't seem super high, but I guess something that was originally worth 29 cents right. being worth at least yeah. 75 bucks is pretty good. And if they hadn't sold off those 150,000, I mean it would be worth way it would more. be worth so much and more. And I'm sure I'm sure their value has probably gone down as well. I'm mm-hmm. sure it was much when it happened in the 90s people were like, "Oh my god, I have to have it." And now it's like, "Yeah." Right. What's this thing my grandma had or something, you know? <laughs> I wonder if David has I one. I was thinking about that. We have a friend that uh, collects stamps and we would ask him. <laughs> so, um In conclusion, the popular image of the cowboy in print and the movies has greatly underrepresented the true makeup of the cowhands of the West. People of color were an integral part of the story and were part of the cultural diversity characteristic of the American West. By around 1890, the cowboy's world had changed. The mass expansion of railroad lines had rendered long drives unnecessary as more and more lines meant that ranchers had to move their cattle shorter distances. Additionally, barbed wire fences blocked the legendary Chisholm and Western trails. Some old cowboys, like Nat Love, found work as Pullman porters and published autobiographies. Still others, like Bill Pickett, put their riding, roping, or shooting skills to use in the rodeo and vaudeville circuits. Most, however, like Johanna July and Bose Eichert, lived out the rest of their lives in relative obscurity, doing the work that was needed in order to get by. So if this podcast has piqued your interest, I encourage you to check out the show notes on digpodcast.org, where you'll find all the sources used for this episode. We appreciate your listens and your support. Make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. And if you're so inclined, contribute to our Patreon account so that we can keep this podcast going. Yep. And stick around for the outtakes. Bye. Bye. Yet the myth of the West. (laughs) Yet the myth. No, it's okay. Black cowboy. Whoa, calm down. Black cowboys. Cowboys. Myth that the West. Why do I keep saying myth and West? Who followed? The... Oh no, she didn't hear me, or that one didn't hear me, did it? Me 
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.